Today's episode is sponsored by Privacy.com, the totally free service that lets you buy anything online without having to give out your credit card number and lets you prevent companies from overcharging you at the same time. Your Privacy.com account lets you create virtual credit card numbers, which are linked to your bank account, that you can then use anywhere you would normally use your credit card. There are countless different advantages to using virtual credit cards rather than your real one. Obviously, security is a major one. And so with a virtual card, when companies get hacked and people's information is stolen, you're safe because you're not giving out your real credit card number. You can find out more, get 100% free and unlimited access, and a $5 credit just for trying by going to privacy.com slash best, and you can find that link in the show notes. And now... Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast in which we shall learn about the past and present of our immigration system to understand the paradigms within which the entire debate takes place. Clips today come from Citations Needed, The Dig, Intercepted, Who, What, Why, Cape Up, and Democracy Now! The idea that we're a nation of immigrants is a trope we hear time and time again. As a nation of immigrants celebrates July 4th, a battle on the border explodes along cultural lines. We are a nation of immigrants. A reminder that America is a nation of immigrants. We're a nation of immigrants. We are a nation of immigrants, as you know. We're also a nation of immigrants. And we must uphold that tradition, which has strengthened our country in so many ways. As a nation of immigrants. My fellow Americans, we are and always will be a nation of immigrants. And America is a nation of immigrants. It has always been a nation of immigrants. And President Trump cannot change that with an executive order. The concept of a nation of immigrants was first introduced in a tract by then-Senator John F. Kennedy that he wrote at the request of the Anti-Defamation League. The book literally entitled A Nation of Immigrants, was released posthumously in 1964. And the book argued that the United States should change the National Origins Act's quota system. Upon becoming president two years later, Kennedy proposed a bill that created a system for allowing immigrants into the country based on family ties and special skills, which was called the Immigration and Nationality Act, also known as the Hart-Celler Act. The Hart-Celler Act abolished the quota system that existed, that was based on national origin, uh, that had been the American immigration policy since 1924. And this marked a huge change of U.S. policy. Historically, they had discriminated against non-Northern Europeans. And the 1965 Act removed racial and national barriers to immigration. So the point was really to open up the idea of what a good immigrant would be, right? Beyond uh, the constraints of just uh, Irish and German (laughs) and Scottish and Welsh, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, so it had that opening up quality, but without opening that up too wide. So Irish and Italian and Jewish immigrants were now on the good side. However, Kennedy's book, A Nation of Immigrants, makes no mention – this is this is in the, in the late 50s when he wrote it – makes no mention of Mexicans specifically or Latinos more broadly. This idea of a, quote, nation of immigrants, end quote, is historically really about expanding the definition of whiteness rather than directly combating that concept. The term since then has been frequently evoked as a kind of liberal bromide. The general thing also to note is that a lot of the anti-immigration laws of the 1920s were really about excluding Asians, about excluding Japanese, Chinese. Uh, there was a real sense that a- that Asians were were a unique threat to the racial hegemony of the United States. Yeah, the yellow peril. 
And so you saw in that time of mass Asian immigration as well, many immigrants being forced, like shuttled into into Chinatowns that were in every urban center, many of which were first formed because of this idea of otherness and of a threat and of a perennial foreignness that Asian immigrants kind of have in this country. Japanese Americans obviously were interned during World War II, and Jim Crow was the law of much of the land. And so despite all of that, even with that happening, with Jim Crow being literally current legal system of apartheid in a large part of the country, and just over a decade after Japanese internment camps, Kennedy writes this book about a nation of immigrants. Yeah. But let's back up a bit. The nation of immigrants narrative itself is very cleverly designed to obfuscate history and the truth of settler colonialism, a transatlantic slave trade, indentured servitude, racist discrimination, and the like under the, under the kind of banner of positivity that um, a phrase like nation of immigrants brings. So let's be perfectly clear. The Puritan pilgrims of the Plymouth colony were not immigrants. Africans kidnapped, tortured, and brought to the Americas in chains were not immigrants, despite how Ben Carson, Trump's Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, describes slaves as, quote, immigrants who came here in the bottom of slave ships, unquote. The first real wave of immigration to the United States was the mass influx of Irish in the 1840s, when John F. Kennedy's own ancestors emigrated here. That was followed by decades of emigration from Scandinavia, Eastern and Southern Europe, as well as East Asia, um, notably when the California Gold Rush began. There were actually no federal immigration laws at all until the 1875 Page Act, which was named after its sponsor, Republican Congressman Horace F. Page of California, who was himself a notorious anti-Asian racist who saw the growing Chinese labor population in California as a distinct threat to white civilization. Um, later that same year, the Supreme Court determined in the Chai Lung v. Freeman case that immigration policy— as an arm of foreign relations, should rest solely in the hands of the federal government rather than at the discretion of individual states, as it had previously. The Page Act was followed by the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, yes, that's a real thing, uh, the same year's Immigration Act, and subsequently the Immigration Act of 1891. So, Fast forward to uh, JFK's post-World War II ADL-commissioned Nation of Immigrants book, and we see that the point was actually to further open up, further expand the definition of the so-called good immigrant beyond its formerly waspy constraints, uh, but without opening it up too wide. Yeah, and so you have this idea that they're expanding the definition of what it is to kind of be white in a, in a sense, right? So now Italians, Jews, Irish are now sort of in the club. Mm -hmm. And this was promoted by the Anti-Defamation League. In the 1930s, they, were, they promoted this idea of Judeo-Christian values because they kind of wanted to lump Jews in with Christians for their own self-preservation mm -hmm. to prevent the rise of Nazism and, and anti-Semitism in the 20s and 30s. You know, with Father Coughlin and Lindbergh, it was a huge, huge problem, right? Yeah. When Kennedy wrote this, this tract in 1958, it was about sort of vaguely broadening the definition of good immigrants. In their defense, this was, I, I believe, probably what they perceived as a winnable thing, right? Like, they're sort of white, you know, they have similar quote-unquote <laughs> right. values, they're good, wholesome, anti-communist so why not let them be part <laughs> yeah. of the club? Right. And then this slowly morphed to the idea of nation of immigrants, slowly morphed mm -hmm. into this kind of liberal bromide. Um, and very often it was done, it was evoked directly before uh, or after anti-immigrant rhetoric. 
So in, in Clinton's 1995 State of the Union address uh, is a really good example of this. We will try to do more to speed the deportation of illegal aliens who are arrested for crimes, to better identify illegal aliens in the workplace as recommended by the commission headed by former Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. We are a nation of immigrants, but we are also a nation of laws. It is wrong and ultimately self-defeating for a nation of immigrants to permit the kind of abuse of our immigration laws we have seen in recent years, and we must do more to stop it. So yeah, right before and after he smears, you know, illegal aliens and talks about going hard on illegal criminals and sort of does this whole vile, you know, this was a great 1990s trend of beating Republicans by talking like Republicans. Clinton then does this whole platitude about how, well, we're a nation of immigrants. And you hear this a lot. People say, oh, we're a nation of immigrants, but we're also a nation of (laughs) laws and we're about certain immigrants. Right. Well, which is also immediately putting up a false dichotomy, right? Or like a mutually exclusive notion of what an immigrant is and that they have to conform because so much of this is about assimilation and even a more kind of aggressive form of Anglo conformity. So it's like, that's the notion of immigrant communities here are deemed to be good as long as the immigrant communities aren't totally closed off and totally insular, that assimilation is good. And then on the other side of that, you see more nativist rhetoric about keeping those people over there and these people over here. And it all gets kind of mixed together also when you talk about the notion of multiculturalism, where communities should be respected for their own differences, and that the mixing together, the melting pot aspect of this idea, of this concept, of this trope, really becomes problematic. So, uh, you know, before we continue, I should note that the idea of saying melting pot or nation of immigrants um, oftentimes is used as a flattening and glossing over phrase of real issues regarding the movement of human beings across arbitrary colonial borders, across borders that are created and maintained by by violence and by military, and that these phrases supplant real conversations and real movement toward understanding justice, understanding not only our own history, but the vicious and violent creation of our society and its borders. So this flattening of history masks uh, settler colonialism, it masks slavery, it masks systemic inequities under this really kind of benign and banal narrative of we're all interconnected, everyone is quote-unquote tolerant. It serves the same idea of like, oh yeah, like if if we could just be colorblind, then everything would be okay. It's a total glossing over of entire communities' lived experience. Yeah, and of course, as we talked about offline, even the concept of of the melting pot itself, and you know, others have criticized this this term as well. But who's involved in the pot? Who's in the pot, and who's being melted <laughs> uh-huh. has expanded. Has it's you know, it started off as largely or exclusively white European countries, and they thought it was super cute that a French guy and a Scottish guy got along. Um, as long (laughs) as they were sort of within the proper domain of Christendom. Right, exactly. So the first use in American literature of this concept of all these different cultures, all these different immigrants getting melted together, fusing together into this new American culture as distinct from European culture, the first use of this 
was really found in the writings of J. Hector St. John de Crevecoeur. Uh, so he wrote Letters from an American Farmer in 1782, and in it, he basically asks this question, quote, Whence came all these people? They are a mixture of English, Scotch, Irish, French, Dutch, Germans, and Swedes. What, then, is the American, this new man? End quote. Yeah, because, again, it was somewhat of a novelty, right? You didn't have that much cross-ethnic uh, mixture in Europe, so to the Europeans writing... America was this sort of experiment in kind of cross-European mixing, but of course that is a very limited idea that was limited to a certain number of people. The history of our notion of immigrants is really a history of evolving notions of whiteness, mm -hmm. and this is still the case today. It was only at the beginning of the era of restriction in the late 19th and early 20th century that the word immigrant even began to came into use. And it was it had a negative connotation at the time. Prior, people were called emigrants, which could refer to either people moving to settle out west or coming into the country. It was more of a synonym for settler. But then suddenly in the 1960s, after JFK and whatnot, there's this idea that we're in amidst the civil rights movement, the black freedom movement. There's this idea that we're a nation of immigrants. And to this day, liberals especially, I think, reread all of the country's history backwards through that erroneous lens. You know, it's very interesting that we've been somewhat anachronistic in talking about the, the early history. And, you know, occasionally I've been slipping in the word immigrant that like the word that was used was immigrant. And it, you know, it, it could mean coming from abroad, but an immigrant could just be somebody that's moving from a different locality from another county or another state. Um, oftentimes the people that were actually on ships, um, coming from Europe, the term for them was like passenger. Um, and the way that, you know, migration policy was organized wasn't even one that really emphasized a distinction between the national border and other local borders. The, you know, oftentimes it would be done at the state level and the state policy would be about like, you know, limitations on people with contagious disease, diseases or concerns about folks that might be quote unquote poppers. And so like, um, you know, or <laughs> removal of people that were poppers from one state to another or placing people that are poor in workhouses in places like Massachusetts or in New York. Um, and immigration becomes the language of the new restrictionism in the late 19th century. And then it only really emerges as a positive language in, you know, basically like when you're starting to get to like the thirties and the, the popular font culture of the new deal that's built on white ethnic working class votes in the cities. That's telling a story of cultural pluralism as what defines the country. Of course, the thing that's really interesting about it is it's precisely at the historical moment where the, the borders you know, most aggressively closed. Including to Jews um, fleeing the Holocaust. Exactly. Um, and then it comes back in the late 50s and early 60s. John F. Kennedy is very closely associated with the termination of immigrants, and it becomes the basis for the 65 bill. And the reason why, you know, telling this is actually useful for the, the conversation we were having about nativism is because the Hart-Seller bill 
the the arguments around the U.S. as a nation of immigrants, what it does also is it just obscures um, the nature of not just like the history of of population control, but how like the U.S. is is situated in the world. It's just like you know the U.S. Just a country like any other country, its relationships to Mexico is really like no different than its relationship to any other country globally. There are no real power um, different uh, differences to the extent that the U.S. Is, um, has any place in the world. Maybe it's like that first nation among equals. Um, and so it's totally appropriate. You, uh, you, know, you get rid of racial restrictions. You apply quotas to the Western Hemisphere. You apply quotas to the... You get country-specific quotas in the 1970s applied evenly, which we still have today. That gives people from Bhutan the same number of visas as Mexicans. And the, the only way that this makes any kind of sense is essentially if you've stripped like all of like the historical specificity and truth from the story of migration, which is the policy has been built around demographic settlement of the right kinds of populations. The U.S. is both a colonial enterprise domestically and a particular kind of um, global imperial project that then also has very complicated relationships with places like Mexico and, and other countries in Latin America, and that all of these end up shape, shaping very particular population flows. There's a population flow from Mexico that is not the equivalent of a population flow, as you said, from Bhutan. And the story of the nation of immigrants just means, okay, the U.S. is basically, it's almost like it's an island country, and everybody else sees like this project of freedom and equality that exists domestically and just are kind of jumping to come in. And so we have to put quotas to limit who can come in, but they come in from all over the place. So we're going to have to be fair and give everyone yeah, the same gotta, amount. You got to be fair. And then the problem becomes they seem to be more people seem to be coming in than the the quotas allow. And then the debate becomes, you know, the liberal position is, well, we should be more inviting about the people that want to come in. And the quote unquote conservative position is, well, wait a second, laws are laws. And it's illegal to try to come in in ways that supersede the quota. And so the nativists are able to essentially obscure the racial grounding of their argument, which is an argument about ra- about essentially demographic purity, which occasionally seeps through. Occasionally you have sessions yeah. say something like, you know, actually I like those 1924 national origins quota or like Bannon say, you know, we should be a quote unquote civic society. But for the most part, or Pat Buchanan, that gets – it, it all gets obscured. Because in a way, um, it's all framed through a popular conversation, you know, about the U.S. as sort of ethically open to all, but organized through particular rules that are colorblind and that, you know, highlight it's the country's status um, as a nation of immigrants. And then what ends up happening practically is that communities that in fact, because of the colonial and imperial histories, have like thick relationships with the country – um, find themselves facing the brunt of coercive violence in a way in which, you know, it's very difficult within the terms of American discourse to even articulate, you know, why an, an undocu- undocumented migrant from um, Mexico is actually like a subordinated person in this country that's tied to like three centuries of history. Yeah, you, you write, quote, now in place of European co-ethnics, Immigrants to the United States are overwhelmingly non-white, the very individuals that settlers once deemed unfit for full membership. 
And instead of extending settler projects into the frontier or periphery, as 19th century immigrants did, today's new arrivals in essence represent the movement of this periphery into the very center of metropolitan power. I think this is very right on. And as we've been discussing, it seems that it's this entire historical trajectory is obscured precisely by the nation of immigrant stories that pro-immigration liberals and establishment conservatives are so dedicated to telling. By contrast, the, the people on the most radical fringes of the nativist right are, are correct that immigration today is fundamentally different, uh, but only the most brazenly white nationalist and paleoconservative nativists will say precisely why. I think that's right, which is there's a particular kind of national myth um, that obscures the the kinds of forces and dynamics that, that shape population movement. And the only folks that unfortunately seem to be willing to actually, you know, highlight the the story of like ra- of like racially defined population control are the the sessions and bannons of the world that want to affirm a particular kind of demographic project. If you're looking for well-made clothes with no hidden agenda, look no further than Packed Apparel. Packed makes incredibly soft clothing for the whole family, all with a clean, green, do-gooder mentality. They use 100% organic cotton and other sustainable materials, but don't use toxic dyes, synthetic fertilizers, chemicals, and other gross stuff you don't want touching your skin or in your water supply. Plus, they partner with fair trade certified factories, where the people who make the clothes are treated with dignity and are given additional wages to invest in their families and communities. But they don't want all of these good deeds to price their products out of the reach of the average clothes wearer, so Pact is on a mission to democratize organic by pricing their clothes fairly. Tees are just 15 bucks, leggings 30, and undies only 9. I'm sure you're going to love them too. I see packed apparel every day because their hooded sweatshirt has become the lounge wear of choice right here in my apartment due to its magic combination of coziness and chicness. Shop women's, men's, and kids' styles at wearpacked.com and enter the code BEST OF LEFT, all one word, at checkout for 25% off your first order. That's W E A R P A C T.com and the code BEST OF LEFT. Explain how you see this particular moment that we're in with this shutdown and the so-called battle over the border. I see it as a long climax of what I call the bordification of national politics or the the nationalization of border brutalism, just the way that the violence and xenophobia and nativism that had long been marginalized or concentrated on the border has become nationalized. Trump is the outcome of decades and decades of policy that he's not wrong when he blames the Democrats. The Democrats have brought into a security-first framework, going back to at least Bill Clinton, but you could even make the case to Jimmy Carter, that has led to this current moment. Not only in the states most heavily affected, but in every place in this country are rightly disturbed by the large numbers of illegal aliens entering our country. The jobs they hold might otherwise be held by citizens or legal immigrants. 
the public service they use impose burdens on our taxpayers. That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more by hiring a record number of new border guards, by deporting twice as many criminal aliens as ever before, by cracking down on illegal hiring, by barring welfare benefits to illegal aliens. First of all, there are parts of the border, and I've traveled along these regions myself, where you do have steel or you do have a wall or you do have fencing. What are the roots of this nativist push for we need a full wall along the southern border of the United States? Up until World War I, the border was relatively open. There was no border. There was no physical barrier except maybe some rolls of barbed wire around ports of entry. Migrants came back and forth seasonally to work in factories and fields and homes. Tens of thousands of these workers are brought across the border from Mexico every year, then sent to work on big farms in the Imperial Valley, the San Joaquin Valley, the Salinas Valley, the Santa Clara Valley, under agreements between the U.S. and Mexican governments. In terms of the physical barrier, it doesn't really start until around Harry Truman in 1948. The first chain lick fence to go up on the border in Southern California, and not ironically, tellingly, I think, that it was recycled materials from Japanese internment camps that were used as the chain link fence. And then you could jump forward to the 1990s when Bill Clinton extended the physical barriers and, and he used um, recycled landing pads from Vietnam. So there's ways in which the darker history of the United States, both internal incarceration and external war, has literally manifested itself on the border in these physical barriers. The wall as a nativist rallying cry doesn't really start until around Vietnam. You could see how the loss in Vietnam leads to a rise of nativism, white supremacy. The border is one site where this is very graphic. And one kind of irony or way of thinking about it is Robert McNamara tried to build a wall between North and South Vietnam. That was one of the strategies called the McNamara line. And so in some ways, there was a continuation after failing to stop the infiltration of the north to the south in Southeast Asia, the nativists become obsessed with building a wall to keep out Mexican migrants. What was the political context of the rise in that nativist thinking? I mean, what was happening on the border? Who was coming across it? Was it some kind of a crisis? Were workers taking away jobs from well, white Americans? Yeah. So the parallel story is the criminalization of migration, right? There's the history of the wall. There's the history of the militarization of the border. And then there's the history of the legal status of migrants. Basically, you could think of it as if in 1910, if you have one big stream or river of basically legal migrants, what happens over the course of the 20th century is that diverts into increasingly criminalized. Under the 1924 Nativist Immigration Act, which white supremacists love, it lowered the quotas for non-white Protestant countries. Mexico was spared immigration quotas because large landowners and factory owners wanted cheap labor. In fact, all of Latin America was exempt from quotas. But the Border Patrol was created in 1924, not with the act, but kind of related to a lot of the politics that were going in 1924. And that was basically a sop to nativists who lost the larger debate about Mexico. But the Border Patrol itself became the kind of point that decided who wasn't entering legally. And there was a series of laws which criminalized the whole stream, that whole current. By the time you get to the 1990s, most migrants from Mexico are considered illegal and undocumented. 
You also write, there have been contradictory judicial rulings, but historically, agent power has been limited by no constitutional clause. There are few places patrollers can't search, no property belonging to migrants they can't seize, and there's hardly anybody they can't kill, provided that the victims are poor Mexican or Central American migrants. Between 85 and 90, federal agents shot 40 migrants around San Diego alone, killing 22 of them. Since 2003, Border Patrol agents have killed at least 97 people, including six children. Few agents were prosecuted. How powerful have these agencies become? Immigration and Customs Enforcement, Customs and Border Patrol. And what would it look like to even hold them accountable? They are incredibly powerful, and they operate with near complete impunity. Those are the deaths and killings that we know of. It's really a kind of lawless region, the borderlands. I would argue, based on my reading of the sources, is that the vast majority of abuse and brutality just went under the radar that we just don't know about it. Again, John Crudson, that New York Times reporter, would just offhandedly talk about Border Patrol agents telling him that they threw, quote, illegals off the cliff and made it look like an accident. They would seize their property. They would seize the documents, the birth certificate of citizens, U.S. citizens. But if they were poor and Latino, they would have to spend enormous amount of resources trying to get their birth certificates reissued. So there was no, there's no accountability. Their power is practically limitless. And this issue of separating migrant families, there wasn't really an official government policy on this, but isn't it the case that these agents still were doing it just sort of freelance? Yeah, they would target children in migrant crossings and as a way of using them as bargaining chips with the families, forcing them to confess, forcing them to turn themselves in. There's cases of children who were U.S. citizens who were captured by the Border Patrol and then just released in Mexico with little recourse or means for how they can return. The practice that's been reported on now of placing migrants in extremely cold holding centers, that dates back at least to the 1980s. Crutzen reports on INS officials trading young Mexican women to Los Angeles Rams for season tickets. I mean, this is a level of abuse and impunity and horror that's hard to wrap one's mind around. We know that thousands of children have been separated from their parents and held in prisons, um, camps. But at the same time, we've had several deaths that seem to have been preventable of children who were then taken into U.S. custody. What do you see that has happened there? And is it different than deaths that happened under the Obama administration or previous presidencies? No, I, I think that what Trump has done is by politicizing the issue rather than making it about a pragmatic or technocratic policy concern about border security. He's pulled the, the curtains back to reveal the horror of the border. And this has been going on. Certainly, the deportations under Obama increased and, and with the same intent to create a, a deterrent. So in, in many ways, it's a continuation. I think w what Trump does is he turns it into spectacle. And obviously, it's related to maintaining his own political base, right, of 35, 38 percent. Trump loves to, you know, he says, oh, I just had, uh, you know, Nancy and Chuck, referring yeah. to Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer in the White House or their representatives. And, you know, he, there's all this fanfare on Twitter about how he told them to get lost, uh, you know, because they weren't agreeing to his border. But we don't really have an effective opposition coming from the leadership of the Democratic Party on this. Um, break down what we're sort of seeing the elites of the Democratic Party staking out as their position right now. They're staking at the position that they've had basically since the late 1970s with Jimmy Carter, the idea that you could trade border security for some kind of limited reform, whether it be one-time amnesty, 
Bush tried this, George W. Bush, Barack Obama tried this, the idea that you could give the border brutalists, the nativists, whatever they want in terms of security, in terms of billions and billions of dollars to turn the border into what Chuck Schumer in 2013 called tough as nails in exchange for, for some kind of one-off reform. Now we're talking about DACA, the deferred, which would legalize the status of undocumented residents who came here as children. It's a devil's bargain and, and it can't work. What the Democrats need to do is that they need to seize on the migration issue as a moral issue. Uh, something equivalent of the civil rights issue. Just as you couldn't have Bull Connor police departments and Jim Crow laws and call yourself a democracy in the 1960s and 1970s, you can't have a country where over more than 10 million people live completely vulnerable in the shadows and call yourself a democracy. But the Democrats constantly trim on the issue and they're constantly trying to... I mean, look, when Schumer and Pelosi sat down with Trump, Trump said, well, we all agree on that border security is important. And Schumer said, yes, we agree on that. And then Trump said, well, we agree. Well, we agree on that. So you're seeing the Democratic leadership, at least, caught in the contradiction of policy impasse that's three or four decades in the making. Today's episode is sponsored by Blinkist. You may think you don't have the time to read a book, but Blinkist is here to prove you wrong, sort of. Blinkist is the only app that takes the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes for you to read or listen to. Blinkist is made for busy people like you who want to get the main points of books quickly, and with their audio feature, you could easily finish four books a day while you're on the go, while you're not listening to podcasts, of course. I generally use Blinkist in two ways. Uh, One is I like to binge through several books if there's an opportunity like a road trip or something like that. And the other is using it as a way to instantly learn more about a book I've just heard of. As in, I can go from learning that a book exists to having a really good idea about the book's major concepts in 15 minutes flat. We really do live in the future. You might want to check out the Michelle Obama book, Becoming. I just listened to the blink of it literally just a few minutes ago, and it certainly beat waiting three months on the library wait list. If you want to check out Blinkist for yourself, for a limited time, they have a special offer for our listeners. Go to Blinkist.com slash best to start your seven-day free trial. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash best to start your seven day free trial and you can cancel anytime blinkist.com slash best i've been working in the field of migration and have had a focus on child migration for many years and i've you know obviously as a human rights lawyer i've been engaged in many policies which i consider harsh unethical and violative of people's human rights. But I think this recent policy of separating families at the border, separating toddlers and very young children from their parents was unprecedented in its uh, barbarity, I will use that word. I think it was an extremely um, cruel and unnecessary way of trying to get a deterrent message out to a vulnerable population in need of protection. I think that the context is um, sadly uh, qu- of quite long standing. The US has had um, a weak and 
deficient um, approach to the protection of children's rights, including immigrant children's rights and refugee children's rights for a long time. And one of the things I note in my uh, child migration book is that um, because the U.S. is not covered by the main international law on the rights of the child, the so-called UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, it's the only country in the world that is not covered by that convention, then it is not forced to take as seriously the rights and interests of children as other countries are. So I think there's often in the public at large and amongst many of us, a sort of skepticism about international law and about human rights, you know, that they're all talk, um, but actually when push comes to shove, they don't really deliver. Otherwise, why would we have had so many genocides? Why would we have so many human rights violations? And I think that criticism is a fair criticism. That said, though, countries which are covered by the Convention on the Rights of the Child are forced to be overlooked by an external body, the Committee on the Rights of the Child. And they know that they can be criticized and they can be interrogated. And because that is not the situation in the US, because the US is ultimately self-governing and the Supreme Court is the final um, arbiter of US law and US policy, then there's more freedom, I think, for an administration to advance policies like the ones this administration has advanced, at least to start with, even though they may eventually get knocked down. So there is a long history of the US being an outlier in the way it treats migrant children. I can give you some examples. When I used to uh, live and work in Chicago, and spent quite a lot of time with my colleagues uh, going to some of the detention facilities for children there, I was shocked to see that unaccompanied small children um, arriving in the U.S. didn't have automatic access to legal counsel. I was shocked to see that they were held in a detention center. I was shocked to see that nobody was appointed to be their guardian. Now, I was shocked not because in the UK where I was coming from, everything is perfect by a long shot. Um, There are many immigration problems which I spent years working on. Um, It's not that in Europe everything is by any means perfect. There are many countries which still uh, commit severe violations against child migrants. But I think the harshness of US policy is unusual. And this, (coughs) excuse me, is something that goes back for decades. The other point I'll make is that the context of this um, very troubling family separation policy is a progressive tightening and criminalization of the U.S.-Mexico border, which has been happening for some time. It certainly is a continuation of policies that were in force under the Obama administration. What's changed is that the exercise of discretion and the pursuance of criminalization has multiplied geometrically with this administration. So many of the laws, it's true to say, are not brand new. But what is new is the institutional ideology driving them. And as we all know, in a big bureaucracy like the immigration bureaucracy, 
discretion is really what drives work on the ground. There are big differences between um, what uh, some officers do and some other officers do. And when the whole institution is geared towards a particular bias, if you like, that affects the way individual officers do their work. And so I think that is partly uh, responsible for the way in which this policy rolled out. Let's talk about these controversial things, because another one of the things the Trump administration says is, well, the Obama administration separated children from their families. And so we're just continuing that. Well, there there have been dozens of fact checkers that have looked into that and found that claim to be either false or misleading at best. Mm -hmm. What I want to what I'm trying to get at is. In 2014, when you were going through this, and I remember reading a story, I believe it was um, in the New York Times, where it talked about as the crisis was happening in 2014, as was the want of the of the Obama administration, put all the options on the table. How do we solve this? Put all the options on the table. What I'm trying to understand is how many nanoseconds did it take for the line that said separate children from families to come off that list where it was decided that we're not even entertaining that because that is, that is not only untenable, it would be immoral. I encouraged our border security people, specifically Tom Holman, who was then head of enforcement and removal operations at ICE. He's now the acting director of ICE and Kevin McAleen and, and commissioner Kurlikowski at CBP to come forward with all options. And I wanted to continually evaluate, are we doing all the right things here? And I'm quite sure that the option of separating kids was presented to me and my Obama administration colleagues at the White House. And it was just simply not something we were going to do. From seeing these migrants up close and personal at Border Patrol facilities, where you see mothers literally clinging to their babies after they've carried them literally all the way from Central America, I could not pull a child from her mother and I couldn't ask someone in the Border Patrol or ICE to do that, nor could I even float it as a deterrent measure. It, it's just something I, I couldn't do and my colleagues couldn't do in the administration. And so we did other things which were controversial. As you know, we expanded family detention which was sort of the opposite of separating families, keeping them together. And that was controversial. Very plainly, that was controversial. And I'm not claiming we were perfect. I mean, we, we made some mistakes. There were some lessons learned. Very, this is a very, very difficult problem. Mm -hmm. And we had to make some very, very difficult decisions. And the, anytime you're wrestling with border security, immigration matters, there are never any perfect solutions. No matter what you do, somebody's going to be really mad at you. True. True. I remember. No matter what uh, you yeah. do, somebody's going to be really mad at you. We're all focused on the horror of just the voices of the babies, really. These young children screaming for their parents that we've heard mm -hmm. on the ProPublica audio. Just from your perspective, and I'm trying not to get, I'm really trying not to have you, you know, get into like a, a, a proxy war with the Trump administration. But I do think we need to have a, a conversation about the morality of what's happening and what it says about us as a country, 
right now and how far we've fallen from the years when you were DHS secretary and you're grappling with very serious issues that have very complicated solutions. And yet all of you were able to say this, we are not, we are not doing that. It's here on the paper, but we're not doing that. And how quickly we've gone from that to babies being taken from their mothers, from their fathers, baby prisons being set up to the point where our friend Rachel Maddow, who is as stoic as any news person can be, right. broke down on air right. over this. Yeah. I can't give you a window into the decision-making and the moral fiber of the people who are in decision-making positions today. I can tell you how I felt at the time, which was this is just simply not something I could do. It doesn't take a lot of reflection to come to the conclusion that there is a global human right of every child to be with her parent. And there is a global human right of every parent to be with her child. Absent extraordinary circumstances of health or safety. And so it was just not something we could do. Now, I want to be plain about something. The images in 2014 were not pretty either. Mm -hmm. Just given the demographic of migrant flows that we were dealing with then and dealing with now, there were a lot of children and parents at border patrol facilities. And a border patrol facility, you know, when you're coming in fresh off the, off the border, is a pretty crude place. It's not a pretty place. Mm -hmm. And so then as now, we saw very vivid, disturbing images. Images carry a lot with the American public. And my hope is that the public stays engaged and interested in this issue, though the political crisis here in Washington was resolved short term when President Trump signed that executive order, the humanitarian crisis on our southern border still exists. The crisis in Central America still exists. We're very focused on the 2,300 children who have been dislocated from their parents, as we should be, but there were also some 11,000 children without their parents in HHS shelters who didn't even make it here with their parents. Their parents are still in Those Central are the unaccompanied America, minors. The unaccompanied yeah. children. And there are some 30, 40, 50,000 migrants crossing the border each month now. And so that represents a much larger crisis that has persisted at various different ebbs and flows for the last several years that still needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. 
Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Amy Errett founded the company in 2013, naming it after her daughter with a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. As is so often the case, the status quo options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. You'll look like you just came from the salon, but without the huge time commitment. Experience beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color made in Italy delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. Hundreds of thousands of women have already tried and loved Madison Reed, so go ahead and give it a try for yourself. You can start by finding your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of the Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com and use promo code LEFT. What's very interesting is where birthright law comes from, where the 14th uh, Amendment to the Constitution, um, how it developed. And that's what you document in your book, Birthright Citizens. Tell us its origins. Yes. You know, the U.S. Constitution, the 1787 Constitution, was largely silent on the question of citizenship. And so the issue arises when we have the emergence of communities of free African Americans. These are people, former slaves, who by the early 19th century have created families, communities, have woven themselves into the everyday fabric of the nation, but they occupy a um, ambiguous status before the Constitution. There are those who argue that race is a bar, um, that blackness prohibits uh, citizenship for African Americans. And there are others who begin to make this argument that no, citizenship um, is not rooted in race. Citizenship is rooted in birth. And African Americans seize on this and wage a campaign over many decades in the years preceding the Civil War advocating for their status as permanent members of the body politic, as full members of the body politic by virtue of birthright. And then, of course, the uh, the Dred Scott decision, the infamous Dred Scott decision during the the battles over uh, the future of slavery in America. Could you talk about the impact of that on this uh, debate? Absolutely. Dred Scott is himself an enslaved man who is suing for his freedom. He's doing so in a federal court, and the question arises, does he have standing or the capacity to sue in a federal court because only citizens can bring cases there? And the court concludes— Certainly that Dred Scott himself is not a citizen, he is a slave, um, but then goes further to declare that no black person, be they enslaved or free, can ever be a citizen of the United States. This is a devastating blow, as you can imagine, to free African Americans who have long uh, promoted the view that they are birthright citizens. But what's important to remember about Dred Scott is that its impact on the ground in the daily lives of African Americans is very limited. Very few courts are willing to enforce the literal terms of Dred Scott in um, the cases that they hear. Um, State legislatures are not uh, prepared to defer to the court's reasoning. And African Americans, even in the face of the devastating rhetoric in Dred Scott, continue to wage a campaign for citizenship into what 
then becomes the era of the Civil War. I'm sure you have found, as a historian teaching at a university, um, how little knowledge there is of history. And when you refer just to Dred Scott, explain who he is and his crusading attempt to challenge this and how um, the amendment comes out of what this perhaps most recent decision of the U.S. Supreme Court. But it came out of activism. It came out of Dred Scott's bravery. Who was he? Absolutely. Um, Scott is an enslaved man in the city of St. Louis, Missouri. Um, his case arises because, in the company of his owner, Scott travels to free territory, um, among those places, Minnesota. And the claim had long been that persons who um, were held as slaves but resided in free soil became free themselves. Now, Scott— um, lives in these Minnesota territory. He meets his wife, Harriet. Um, they begin to have a family. They marry. And then, finally, they return to St. Louis, where they are still held as slaves. And by the early 1850s, I think they are concerned that um, they might be sold, that their family might be separated. Um, they are always at risk as enslaved people. And they begin what is, as you, as you explain, a series of freedom suits um, a tireless effort to secure the freedom for themselves and for their two daughters. Um, these cases make their way through the Missouri state courts, um, and when they fail there, wind up before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, there, Chief Justice Roger Tawney, um, now notoriously, pens an opinion um, that um, deprives the Scott family of pursuing their freedom claims in the federal court. Um, but as importantly, um, make sure that no African-American enslaved or free can bring claims before these same high court venues. So uh, could you take us then through what happens after or uh, subsequent to the Civil War when the 14th Amendment uh, is adopted and the and the intention of uh, Congress uh, uh, and the, the and with the passage of the 14th Amendment? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, African-Americans are going to be um, among the first to attempt to volunteer um, in the Civil War era to serve and to support the Union Army. Um, their view is that this is an extension of their long quest for citizenship, that military service, service to the nation in this capacity, might further open the door or make their case um, for their status as citizens. Um, the 13th Amendment, as we know, in 1865, will abolish slavery, but the 13th Amendment does not comment on the status of African Americans before the law, before the Constitution. This is still an unresolved question. And the campaign to the 14th Amendment is precisely designed to respond to that long campaign that African Americans have uh, waged. It is to um, resolve um, the kinds of ambiguities, the kinds of dangers, the kinds of precarity that former slaves face without uh, resort to the status, their status as citizens. And so in 1868, um, after Congress has um, promulgated a 14th Amendment, the states will ratify it. And for the first time, the U.S. Constitution will provide that all persons born in the United States are citizens of the United States. It is a remedy, a radical remedy, to bring millions of former slaves into the body 
politic, but it is written in a way that gives it a lasting and enduring effect, which is to make every person, regardless of race, and I might say regardless of religion, regardless of descent, regardless of political affiliations, make every person born in the United States a citizen of the United States. But now, during that debate over the 14th Amendment, because there are some, uh, a relatively small number of scholars who support this viewpoint of Trump's that uh, that birthright citizenship has been incorrectly uh, uh, interpreted— uh, but that the, even then, in the debate, wasn't there a debate as to whether this uh, this uh, amendment would extend to people who were uh, uh, who were the uh, children born here of immigrants? Immigrants are not what troubles Congress um, during the 14th Amendment debates. Um, what Congress is concerned about when it carves out an exception to the 14th Amendment for people not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, what Congress is concerned about are three things. Um, one are the children of foreign diplomats who might uh, incidentally be born in the United States, the 14th Amendment does not make them birthright citizens. Congress anticipates um, the possibility that the U.S. would be occupied by a foreign army. And in that case, the children of soldiers of a foreign army would not be birthright citizens, even if they were born in the United States. The third category of persons um, who Congress is mindful of are Native Americans. And here, um, we are in an era where Native Native uh, communities, Native nations um, continue to uh, exert and to enjoy um, the independent sovereignty, um, and Congress does not um, interfere or impose on that sovereignty by wholesale deeming Native people U.S. citizens. That will happen later in the 20th century. But it's to say that, no, Congress is not thinking about um, what today we might term unauthorized or illegal immigrants, um, but it does carve out an exception for persons who are said to be not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. And this is the language that um, uh, President Trump and others have seized upon um, as they have looked to constrain or curtail the effect of the 14th Amendment. You end up having like the emergence of like sharecropping, which sort of improvises new bonded forms of black labor. You have systematic voting disenfranchisement. And then you have like a broader structure of segregation. And these end up being kind of overlapping modes of white supremacy that maintain a coerced and dependent black labor supply for a white Southern economy while denying to African-Americans any of the political rights that would be necessary in order to be able to contest that condition of, of dependence. And that's like the story of the return of white supremacy in the South. And it's also the story of like the gutting of the meaning of birthright citizenship. I would say that when folks like Trump invoke this, this rhetoric about how undocumented if the children of undocumented immigrants should not have birthright citizenship, you should see it as a contemporary effort to essentially replicate 
many of those old systems and to, again, gut what's supposed to be the meaning of birthright citizenship, which is like no subordinated racial caste. Because look at what the present consists in. You have a population of undocumented immigrants, like the numbers, um, depending on like how they get counted, it's like some some numbers are more like 11 million, others uh, say that the numbers are closer to like 20. Um, the majority are from Mexico because of the kind of symbiotic relationships that, you, that I just described. Um, they exist within a modern immigration system that's the product of 1996 reforms that um, – that like Clinton signed into law um, that essentially use a system of deportation, detention, and criminalization to mean that everyone, including legal residents, are on a condition of permanent probation that could find their status revoked. And as a quick aside, are deeply embedded in the, the war on crime and also the in the prehistory of the war on terror. Absolutely. That, you know, 1996 is also um, the year that you have things like the passage of like EDPA, the effective, um, uh, what is it, like the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, which is uh, a way of like essentially creating a new criminal system that's anti that's supposed to be about anti-terrorism, but again, provides greater um, criminal um, uh, sanctions and capacities for the state to confront particular kinds of, of, um, of non-white populations. And then also the Illegal Immigration and Immigrant Responsibility Act of the same year. Yeah, so that, that that's the the immigration reform bill that I was describing. That's like from ninety six. That's like the the key piece of legislation. And what it does is it means that you now have this population. The population is here because of various forms of state and private business inducement, as well as like long standing colonial and imperial patterns and symbiotic uh, relationships that exist between different states. But facing like the permanent threat of deportation um, because of these various reforms, like limited access to social programs and benefits, no voting rights, limited labor rights. And then the other thing that's just sort of like the the cherry on the top, so to speak, to just highlight the resonances with the late 19th century, that over half of the non-citizen prison population in federal prisons are in segregated prisons. So this is like incredible work that's been done by a scholar named Emma Kaufman, and she has an article on this that's going to be that's forthcoming, I think, in the Harvard Law Review, but I could be mistaken about the location. 19,000 federal prisoners that are non-citizens are in non-citizen-only prisons. And the majority of them are there for like low-level drug offenses, so not even for um, immigration-related offenses. Um, this is something that basically started emerging in the late 90s as a kind of outgrowth of um, those reforms in 96. And not surprisingly, just like with past separate but equal systems, um, these prisons that again house more than half of um, non-citizens that are in federal prison have limited health um, benefits, fewer various programs, higher instances of violence tend to be in more isolated locations further away from like the families of people that are non-citizens. And if you take a look at this whole structure as a whole, like what is it that you see? Like you see a population from the global periphery, precisely the parts of the world that were historically understood as unfit for full membership. 
Engage domestically in the harder degraded forms of work that are necessary for the economy, but are not viewed as consistent with like free labor from like difficult forms of wage earning agricultural work to um, domestic um, household work that exists in the home that's also highly gendered and feminized. Living under circumstances where there's a continuous shadow of state violence with no meaningful labor protections, minimal access to social benefits, and on top of it, like no meaningful political rights, including the right to vote. The state violence, the state repression is integral to producing the category of illegality. You just mentioned this, the separate prison, the separate prison system, but very much interior raids and also this spectacular militarization of the border, which arguably doesn't do very much to actually keep people from coming in historically, but does very effectively communicate to the American public this distinction that these people are illegal through the criminalization. Yeah. And and the other thing that you can say, like, you know, all of these analogies aren't perfect fits, but the thing that this analogy is highlighting is that a large part of what old Jim Crow, quote unquote, was about was an economic system, like maintaining a dependent labor supply through racial subordination and state-backed violence, including through like spectacular acts of violence and lawless, lawlessness um, on the edges like um, like lynching and other forms of violence as well. And like what is it that we see at present here is a system that's organized to maintain a dependent labor supply. And that operates through um, systematic disenfranchisement and that uses spectacular forms of violence as well, like, you know, including the kinds of state criminality that we're seeing meted out at the border, like the separation of families, the death of migrant children, and on and on and on. So that means that when when Trump talks about r- rescinding birthright citizenship, you know, maybe birthright citizenship is not going to get rescinded. Maybe it's just rhetoric. but it shouldn't be experienced as just sort of like hot air for like a nativist base. It actually tells us something really foundational about the contemporary nature of migration policy and the way in which our contemporary migration policy essentially re, you know, like reasserts the very worst elements of how population control was managed in, in like the long quote unquote 19th century. And what, in fact, then might be like necessary to overcome it and that what's necessary to overcome it is a heck of a lot more than some trade off between additional border security and, you know, limited domestic amnesty, let's say, for dreamers. That if essentially what we see are modern iterations of like an old old Jim Crow organized through the old imperial prerogative, then this has to be smashed root and branch. We've just heard clips today, starting with citations needed, explaining how the nation of immigrants framing, while often well-intended, also works to sanitize our settler colonial past. The Dig, in conversation with Aziz Rana, discussed the history of our legal immigration system and why talking about legality obscures the racial motivations for these ostensibly colorblind laws. 
Intercepted talked with Greg Grandin about the nativist roots of U.S. Border Patrol. Who, What, Why interviewed migration expert Jacqueline Baba, where we heard her condemnation of what she called Trump's barbaric policies. Jonathan Capehart on Cape Up interviewed Jay Johnson, the Secretary of Homeland Security under Obama, who described his reaction to the option of family separation when it was presented to him. Democracy Now! spoke with Martha Jones, author of Birthright Citizens, about the history of the 14th Amendment granting birthright citizenship. And finally, we just heard part two from The Dig, in which they discussed the deeply racist roots of challenging birthright citizenship. Members will be getting a bonus episode with additional clips on the criminalization of immigration, an extended portion of the interview with Jay Johnson, and additional details about how all of the horrors of family separation were part of the Trump team's plan plan all along. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestofleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the devices you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. It's Aaron from Philly. Just wanted to add a slightly amusing postscript to the socialism episode uh, on exactly how just fanatical the U.S. was about keeping any hint of socialism out of the discussion. Last I knew when I was in law school, uh, the Pennsylvania laws against defamation make it defamatory to call somebody a communist publicly. And as far as I know, that's still on the books. So that's just a little illustration for you, I guess. Anyway, thanks for the episode and stay awesome. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, today... I have a proposal, something that uh, came to me a few days ago. I think I'm onto something. I, I think this can get some traction. And uh, what it is, to begin with, is an offer of an olive branch to conservatives or really just anyone who either disagrees with the general progressive perspective on things uh, and, and, and so forth. Here, here's what I have to say. Uh, what I have realized is that progressives really are obnoxious. We we get accused of being obnoxious all the time, and I think we should come to terms with that. We are the bearers of bad news. We are the flies in the ointment, the rain on the parade, the party poopers, the buzzkills, etc. We really are all of those things. And the reason is, uh, pr- well, it becomes clear if you understand the perspective of someone who is uh, is is being told new information from a progressive perspective and and i'm talking mostly about the social realm of politics here the the privileges the racisms the sexisms the systems of oppression that sort of thing because the thing is privilege is great 
as long as you don't know you have it. And uh, I, I came up with this analogy. Long-time listeners know I like analogies. This, I think I, this is a good one. Uh, I just came up with this. Privilege, it, it's like being an athlete whose coach has been slipping you performance-enhancing drugs without you knowing it. And whether you're a great athlete or not isn't really the point. The point is that you know that as an athlete, your accomplishments are due to your own hard work. And then we show up, and we come along, and we tell you that your coach has been slipping you drugs. I mean, that'll throw a person's whole identity into question. And of course, someone's going to be angry about it, deny it, etc. And, uh, you know, like racism, it feels great to think that racism is behind us. You know, there was an old lady, she was tired on a bus, a whole lot of people were mean to her, and then we all decided that that was bad, and so we decided to stop being racist. The end. It's a great story. What a great country we live in to go all the way from, uh, you know, being founded, steeped in slavery, to now not being racist at all. It's it's a great feeling. Same with sexism. You know, like, remember when women were treated as their husband's property? Well, now women are exactly equal to men in every way, except for the ways that they choose to not be equal. You know, or alternately, if there are any ways that women aren't equal, it's just because God or nature wants it to be that way. What a great society we have created. So to tear that fantasy away from people Honestly, it can be downright cruel. I even have a personal story that I feel genuinely bad about. I'm not even kidding here. A few years ago, Amanda's grandmother, who has since passed, was in her early 90s, sharp as attack, and very progressive for her age. Uh, for her age being the operative word. But seriously, like, she was a progressive-minded uh, person. And so a few years ago, we're all sitting together chatting, and Mima says, you know, I just, I love Thanksgiving, because it's for everyone. It doesn't exclude anyone. It's not offensive to anyone. And I thought, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't ruin the fantasy. She's an old woman. Just let her have it. And then what I said was, well, not everyone. I mean, there there are plenty of Native Americans who see Thanksgiving as a day of mourning, actually. And her whole face and body sank and I knew in that moment that I had ruined an old lady's favorite holiday. And so then irritated, she asked, well, is there any holiday that everyone can be happy about? I mean, I don't know. What about the 4th of July? I can't, I can't imagine anyone has any, any objections to the 4th of July. And I said, let it go. Let it go. But then I said out loud, well, I mean, Frederick Douglass had some things to say about how slaves might feel about the 4th. And so, you know, plenty of studies show that conservatives are happier than liberals. And why wouldn't they be? The world they think they live in is way better than the one we obnoxious libs know that we live in. So when you tell a conservative person or a 93-year-old progressive woman uh, any of the uncomfortable truths about the world, we are dragging them down to our level, yanking them down off that cloud nine where they are comfortably lounging, there is no wonder why they get so angry. And, and their reaction, aside from anger, 
is, is very often that we are obnoxious, we are annoying, we're trying to ruin everything, we're trying to ruin everyone's good time, we're trying to make everyone as miserable as we are. And they're almost right, but it's not that we want to ruin everything. It's that everything is already ruined by the facts of reality, and we're just trying to point that out. And it's not that we want to make everyone as miserable as us. It's that we want everyone to see the truth of reality as we do so that we can all work together to make reality better so that everyone is actually happier. I, I would love it if everyone were as happy in reality as conservatives are in their fantasy. That's my goal. So here, aside from my proposition that progressives come to terms with the fact that we are obnoxious buzzkills, here's the compromise I'm proposing. Progressives will admit to being obnoxious and annoying, and in return, all that we ask from the rest of you is that you admit we're usually right. I want to get to the point where we can all commiserate about how annoying reality is. I want for a progressive to be able to speak out on social issues and have the response be like, oh, that's really annoying. I don't want that to be true. And the progressive says, no, I know. I feel your pain. I find it really annoying and obnoxious too. I hate the way reality is. And the person would be like, all right, I mean, I guess as long as you're willing to admit that it's really annoying, okay, let's work together and fix some of these injustices. That's the world I think we can build with this compromise. So I'm, I'm happy to speak not only uh, for myself, I'm happy to take on that mantle for the entire progressive movement. Uh, and if you in your, your everyday conversations and debates uh, want to offer that as an olive branch to help smooth the rough edges of, of any uh, political conversations you're having, go right ahead. Uh, if you have comments on this or anything else, as always, I'd love to hear them. The number to dial, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.